This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. So, moms, did you give your kids a good Christmas? Something Martha Stewart would be proud of? Well, why not? Hmm? Do you want them to grow up feeling unloved, unable to compete in today's dog-eat-dog world, possibly as serial killers? Well, I may be exaggerating on that last part, or maybe not. But it is certainly true that this is a fraught time to be a mother. In fact, what it even means to be a mother in 21st century America is a pretty contentious issue, especially if you have the range of options open to you that many middle-class women do today. Do you keep working? Do you become what magazines call a stay-at-home mom? Does making one of these choices mean that you love your kids more or that you love them less? And how could you ever know that you made the right choices? Here to talk today on Fordham Conversations about what have in the media come to be called the mommy wars is Kirsten Swinth. Swinth is a professor of history at Fordham, and right now she's working on a book about the idea of the working mother since World War II. A little later, we'll hear about the cultural divide between one mother and son. But first, Kirsten Swinth joined me in the studio to talk about what it means to be a mother in America and how that meaning came about. Kirsten Swinth, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, in the book you're working on, you talk about the idea of the problem of the working mother. What's your argument? Today, you hear people talk about the problem of the working mother. Mothers struggling to juggle career and family to balance um, the demands of child rearing and wage earning. You get the funny code word, work-life balance, all of those things that you hear over and over again in the media and maybe in workplaces. It's actually the case that if you go back and look at it historically, the whole idea of this problem facing working mothers of juggling, balancing, wasn't inevitable. It didn't always exist. It's actually an idea that starts to develop probably in the late 70s and early 80s as a way of explaining this change in women's roles and in our family structures. And so one of the things I'm interested in is showing the fact that that understanding of our experience of balancing or juggling isn't the only way to think about it. So one of my most recent favorite ways that I came across this is I was looking at some of the stories about um, the mommy wars that have dominated the media from the early 1980s when these stories first started to appear. And, and I went to look at Ebony Magazine, which is a magazine that is targeted to a black readership. And the most wonderful sort of different perspective emerged as Ebony praised working mothers because they got a kind of balance in their life that um, by having children so that the, that the workforce didn't come to or work being working didn't uh, come to dominate their lives. In other words, it was a positive to um, bring balance into their lives, to add children to their identities as working uh, people so that rather than being a competition or being pulled in two directions, Ebony actually viewed mothering and working in the 1980s anyway as complementary and benefic- mutually beneficial and producing sort of positive benefits for the individual women and her and their families and communities. We now, I think, take it for granted that the problem that all working mothers face is how to balance their lives, but that's not the only way to think about it and not the only way people here in the last 20, 30, 40 years have thought about it or talked about it. One of the things that you talk about in one of the articles that I read is that um, that second wave feminists in the 70s were trying very hard to divorce the idea of mother from the idea of woman. 
as right. a necessary relationship. And you say pretty bl- bluntly that working mothers were not their first concern. Yeah. It, I, and I mean that in a slightly provocative way, but hopefully to break down a, a certain set of assumptions, because we, so often feminists are blamed for not having solved the problem of working mothers or, you know, not not coming up with the solution. But what they were really interested in was facilitating an expansion of the potential identities that women might have. And we have to remember that as they came of age, as the movement developed in the late 60s and early 70s, the kind of central understanding of what it was to be the, you know, the core identity as a woman was to be a mother. And what they were interested in was facilitating the possibility that women could have identities as workers, identities as mothers, identities as community members, and that these um, could all be, again, complementary to each other. So what were the things that happened in American society that got us from that point to where we are now? I would say that if I could name a couple of things. The first is the broad scale economic changes of the last 35, 40 years that include the development of a post-industrial society where more and more people are employed in a service sector economy rather than an industrial economy, economic globalization, which has meant broader insecurity in employment than we saw in the immediate post-war years. And that insecurity in employment has affected both working-class Americans and middle-class Americans. And um, as that insecurity has risen, a couple of things have happened. Women have come in to um, take over many of the service sector jobs, so employment opportunities for women have expanded. So more and more women are simply wage earning, and they are becoming increasingly important wage earners to their families as other kinds of particularly industrial employment weakens. For middle-class and professional workers, as a certain kind of insecurity about you know, long-term middle management employment, um, staying with the same company over a long career, you know, rising from the mailroom to the top in IBM, that kind of idea of the worker fades, a certain kind of insecurity about training children to become workers in that kind of economy unfolds so that there's some sense that we need to spend more time caring for children. And so some tensions have emerged as um, new kinds of demands on women's employment have risen and new kinds of demands on parenting and mothering have emerged. And so that whole idea that we have so much to balance, that the demands on us are so intense, makes sense in, the conte- in that kind of context. Why would these changes in the economy mean that we had to spend more time with our kids? Well, because if you're a middle-class person, one of the primary things you give to your children is an investment in their education, in their emotional and intellectual development. And over the course of the last 20 years, we've developed something that people call intensive mothering, where um, it takes a lot of emotional energy, time, devotion to bring up those kind of children. And if we want to be sure that our children are going to stay middle class, get into the kinds of colleges and schools that we see as necessary now to retaining middle class status, but we face increasing insecurity about that kind of employment, you get a kind of tension between needing to put more and more effort into guaranteeing a future that seems increasingly insecure. 
You said in one of your articles that the idea sort of came around in the 80s that children were in danger Mm -hmm. and they needed to be protected all the time. Tell me about that and how that came to be important. Well, of course, there are the changes in society that many of us remember from the 80s, the sense of expanding drug use, rising violence, and a series of external threats that we identified as endangering children, schools seeming less capable of educating our children. But at the same time, there was a kind of weakening of many of the liberal social movements of the 60s that had carried forward into the 70s in a sense that there was a broader society that could address the needs and um, fix the schools and um, improve living conditions and rehabilitate drug users. You know, those kinds of broader social movements weakened over the course of the 80s. So the question about how would we address those kinds of things that seem to be threats to children seemed all the more powerful or demanding. Perhaps I think what also lies behind your question or that might be useful for me to talk about here is how as you get more and more people facing less secure employment and the economic forces that seem to be at work seem large scale and global, then the question of how do you protect children? How do you raise them? How do you keep them from being you know, buffeted by the winds of what Hillary Clinton wrote about in It Takes a Village, she calls, you know, alienation and isolation spreading throughout society. And if you no longer have mothers in the home because they're out working, where are we going to do that for children? How are we going to provide those kinds of cares for children? And in, in the 80s, because of the political climate and the changes in social movements, there was very little sense that there was anyone beyond the individual mother or individual father to address those concerns. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this morning on the show with Fordham history professor Kirsten Swint. She's working on a cultural history of the working mother since World War II. A little later, we'll hear about the cultural divide between one mother and son. But first, let's hear more of our conversation with Kirsten Swint. I asked Swint, who is a working mother herself, what the idea of the problem of the working mother means to her. The problem of the working mother, well, it's the one that happens when I open my newspaper in the morning when I walk downstairs, and I see another story in the newspaper about how daycare is good for kids or bad for kids, and I feel sick to my stomach because someone's telling me, as a working mother, that what I'm doing is good or bad. It's this lived experience that so many of us have of feeling like we're a social problem, a feeling like someone's judging us, defining us, characterizing us by how we um, figure out how to mother and wage earn. And so I take sort of that sort of moment of opening my newspaper as a kind of symbol, the fact that people care so much about what I do as kind of a symbol of a larger cultural uncertainty that we have about how we can possibly 
sustain the wage earning that is necessary for mothers and desired by individual women as a source of fulfillment and autonomy at the same time as we provide caring and nurturing to children and partners and uh, and members of our communities. And it's not clear in a global capitalist economy where we're going to do that. And so my interest is in thinking about the different ways we've tried to explain that change to ourselves. What are some of the other kinds of stories that we might tell? Um, we might uh, tell a story instead of a story about individual women juggling, we might tell a different story about how society and business can help produce workers and citizens for future generations. So we might tell a more collective enterprise that views children not as individual members of a household, but as symbols of the future of the country and talk about a larger responsibility of the society and a larger need to provide health the educated citizens. We might talk more calculatingly about who's going to pay into Social Security benefits down the road and how we can best facilitate raising those workers rather than individualizing it as a problem of mothers in their own homes um, that they have to solve themselves. You talk in one of your articles about how the idea of the working mom as, as we see it today only applies to sort of a very specific set of women. Who does that term apply to? If you're you're looking at most sort of popular media descriptions of the working mother, you're talking about white professional women rather than talking about working class women or non-white women. And um, one of the ways that I've looked at this is I wrote about the show Who's the Boss? I don't know how many of you remember this show, but in it, a woman named, uh, played by the actress Judith Light is a, a single mom who's working as an advertising executive, and she hires the actor Tony Danza to be her housekeeper. Morning. May I help you? Well, if you're Angela Bauer, I'm here to help you. I beg your pardon. I'm Tony Maselli. I'm here about the job. Oh, I'm sorry. There must be a mistake. This job is for a housekeeper. That's me, Mr. Goodmop. <laughs> Well, uh, my mother's screening everyone. Did you meet her? Yeah, yeah, yesterday. Uh, you know, she gave me the once-over, kicked me in the tires, put me up on a rack. <laughs> well, she should have checked under your hood because you're the wrong sex. Oh. What I found when I looked at that show is that it really represented uh, who the working mother was as someone like Angela Bauer on the show, you know, someone who lived in a white picketed fence in the house in the Connecticut suburbs and uh, could afford to hire, you know, a full-time housekeeper, as Tony Danza was called on the show, to look after her son and her home. Excuse me. I'm in a terrible rush. I've got to get Jonathan to school and I've got to catch a train. Well, I could take him. You know, the, the show was on the air at the same time as, in reality, increasingly the people who performed the labor that Tony Danza performed were non-white women, many of them immigrants, and these were the people who were becoming nannies and child caregivers, particularly in large urban centers like New York. And so the show, in some ways, kind of missed a whole class of working mothers, right? By making Tony Danza the ideal housekeeper, it missed the working mother who were immigrant women working in domestic service and households and, of course, in other kinds of locations as well. 
And one thing you actually talk about in that article where you write about who's the boss is a failed sitcom that came out at the same time called I Married Dora. Yeah, I Married Dora. What a, it, it had the funny, the, the oddest premise is that a man who's newly widowed uh, agrees to marry his El Salvadoran undocumented nanny to provide her with a green card. And she's going to stay on and work for the family. And unlike Who's the Boss, the show failed. I Married Dora was, I think it lasted 13 episodes. And the question becomes, why would Who's the Boss succeed when I Married Dora, which more directly and openly addressed the actual social changes that were going on, why would that show that was more truthful fail when Who's the Boss, which is sort of a fantasy, succeeded? And I think it succeeded because... It provided a real attractive picture of a reconstituted and happy family. I mean, Tony Danza comes into the household, and he is this really sensitive guy. He supports um, the Angela Bauer in her career. He's a, he's a great substitute dad for her son. He's really sexy and attractive. And on top of that, when she comes home from work, he pulls a pitcher of martinis out of the fridge for her. Um, and so... It's. It, I think it provides, and they never argue about you know who's going to wash the dishes. Um, so it, the show, I think, papered over the kinds of conflicts and tensions that were real in society, and provided this other kind of more idealized and and funny, you know, promise that people could make this situation work. All right, egg fans, let's show those chickens they have not laid in vain. <laughs> All right, two scramble working, baby. Do I hear fried, boiled, basted, or sunny side up? Jonathan, how would you like your eggs? In the shell. I hate eggs. <laughs> I'll just have some crunchy crawlers and a cup of coffee. And Angela, although a shark in the office, was somewhat incompetent at home, so he was able to assert his bossness there in the house. That's right. I mean, she can't cook and he can cook. She can't, you know, all those kinds of things, except she does wash her own lacy underwear, which he can't seem to handle. Um, but um, one of the things the show does by doing that, on the one hand, it, 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 it retains his manhood and he, he can, you know, have some, some arena of authority. But at the same time, what it suggests is that those kinds of relationships where you're um, employing someone to look after your home and look after your children are more um, egalitarian, more sort of relationships of friendship. Angela and Tony describe themselves as fl- as friends. And of course, as any of you who watch the show know, they do eventually fall in love with each other and have a romance. And there's this constant sense that they're kind of right for each other. So rather than really addressing this as a situation where someone's being employed, it becomes one of a kind of intimate friendship come family relationship. And and the show actually shows um, Angela and Tony as kind of reconstituting a family. They describe themselves as a real family or an extended family or a new family over and over again in the show. Now, I'm sure you watched countless hours of, of 80s sitcoms and movies and such, but you did ultimately decide to mostly write about um, who's the boss and Mr. Mom. Why did you decide to write about uh, those couple of things? Why did those sort of distill something for you? Well, because in the uh, what I was interested in in those uh, in that show and in the movie, Mr. Mom, 
were the ways that you get these white men being caregivers of children in the 1980s. And I was like, why on earth in the 1980s in sort of popular TV and popular Hollywood film would you get men, you know, caring for women? And, you know, you, there's also, of course, the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, where Robin Williams comes back and dresses up as a woman to be the nanny for his children. And what did that say about the particular set of fears and anxieties and uncertainties that we were facing as you had sort of rising levels of divorce and single motherhood and wage-earning mothers. And again, for me, those shows suggest the possibility of a kind of reconstituted nuclear family almost along that sort of idealized 1950s line of, you know, mom and dad and kids in the very moment when, if you think about the late 80s and the early 90s, economic globalization is taking off and many other social forces are actually making that kind of reconstituted nuclear family less and less a reality. Where is everybody? Up here. Susanna. Hi, everybody. Mommy's home. Hi, Mommy. How's your day? This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We are talking this morning on the show about modern motherhood with Fordham professor Kirsten Swinth. Ahead this morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarki. In a moment, we'll hear about how immigration has affected how one mother and son understand each other. But first, let's hear the rest of our conversation with Kirsten Swint. I asked her about a term that I have seen a lot in the media, but that I've never really understood, the mommy wars. Well, mommy wars are supposedly the catty battles that go on between mothers who are working and mothers who are stay-at-home. So it goes something like this. Those working mothers, they don't care anything about their kids. They stay, you know, they drop their kids off at daycare and leave them there, and then they pick them up at the end of the day, or it goes. Those stay-at-home moms, they don't really look after their kids anyway. All they do is get manicures and go shopping. And so there's a kind of mean-spirited, at least in the kind of newspaper and journalistic reporting, divide between mothers who are wage-earning and mothers who are staying at home and not wage-earning. This has played itself out in various kinds of comparisons. The, the, the first Mommy Wars debates or stories appeared in the early 1980s, and they compared the Mommy Wars to the Cold War, in which there was it was like the battle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and working moms and stay-at-home moms were in sort of in a standoff of tension and hostility with each other. Some of you might remember the Louise Woodward trial, which happened in 1997. And Louise Woodward was a young woman from England who was an au pair who uh, killed a nine-month-old baby in her care. And her trial became an occasion for blaming the mother of the child for working rather than staying at home and caring for her children. So you got comments like, I guess that woman didn't want children. Now they don't have, now she doesn't have one. And holding the mother responsible for the death of the child rather than, than the au pair. 
there. And it was a complicated case, but it, it played itself out as a divide over the mommy wars. Um, some other instances that you might remember. Well, Caitlin Flanagan published the book To Hell With All That in it last year. I don't know if some of you may have read that. And she talks in that book about her connection to mothering and not, not exactly housework, but uh, kind of housewifery, I might say, the sort of the skills of caring for a home that produced a lot of sort of commentary and refutation because she, t- she tended to, uh, in, in the views of Manny, to idealize and romanticize being at home while she herself was actually working and had full-time childcare in her own home. How has the idea of what a mother is supposed to be changed in the last 30, 40 years or so? And do we see these things as unchanging? Well, I would say in the last 30 years or so, we have ratcheted up our expectations uh, of mothering. In other words, what makes someone a good mother now is the willingness to devote herself both in time and in emotional energy to her children at a level that we really didn't expect, even in those supposed halcyon days of the 1950s when we had mothers at home full time. So now mothers are supposed to be getting baby Einstein so they can nurture their child's brain development and taking on that responsibility when baby Einstein isn't enough. The kinds of um, demands that are expected uh, of the good mother are much, much higher than they used to be. Our understanding of what children need to develop has changed over time, so our expectations of what mothers do to do that. used to be we thought that children got their educations at school. But now we think children actually get significant parts of their education at home because schools aren't failing, because we don't have any faith that we can change the schools. So our ideas of what mothers do have changed over time. I think we probably live on a day-to-day basis with the idea of what a mother is as an immutable, and we, we have a sense that there's something natural about how mothers are that has been, th- been this way, because it seems like it's somehow something instinctive. But Everything I know as a historian teaches me that our understanding of what a mother is has changed over time and is changing all the time and is not something that's permanent. And if you look back 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, our ideas about what makes up a good mother are very, very different. Well, Kirsten Swin, thank you so much for coming in. Glad to have been here. That was Fordham history professor Kirsten Swinth, and this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. We closed the show today with a different kind of story about a mother and a son from producers Sandy Mack and Romana Amato with Cura Youth Radio in Chicago. This story about the culture clash between a Chinese mother and her Chinese-American son from Chicago's Chinatown. Eric Fong's front gate just got repaired, and now it's golden red like a Chinese envelope. Above the red gate is a black mailbox imprinted with the Chinese word harmony. Mrs. Fong parks her car across the street from the house. Her jade pendant of Buddha hanging from her rearview mirror jingles when she slams the car door. Her Manchuwak polo always carries the scent of fried rice carryouts and incense. She makes her way towards the front gate. Uh-huh. 
Behind her, Eric climbs out of the car, holding a brown bag of greasy Maxwell burgers. She stares directly at him and complains, "Eating so much junk food and burgers isn't healthy for you." Eric simply shrugs his shoulders and takes a big bite of his all-American hamburger with lots of onions. As the onions slip out of the bun, Mrs. Fong rolls her eyes and tells Eric, "Pull your baggy pants up." Eric's phone rings, and the tune ASAP was like a strange language to Mrs. Fong. Eric says, "Ma, I'm a rollout with my boys." Mrs. Fong immediately calls out to him, "Bad boy, don't come home too late." Eric replies with an, "Aight, Ma." Then the block of Twenty Fourth and Wentworth is empty. The two-story townhouses of red and beige bricks stand next to one another like an army of imperial soldiers. Mrs. Fong shakes her head slowly and opens her golden red mailbox with the Chinese character harmony. To see if there's anything in it. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you missed part of the show today, or if you would like to hear it again, there are a couple ways to go. It's available as a podcast at wfuv.org, and it's in our audio archives, which you can also find on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at wfuv.org, and we would love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. So be sweet and kind to mother now and then. Have a chat. Buy her candy or some flowers or a brand new hat. But maybe you had better let it go at that, or you may find yourself with a quite complex complex, and you may end up like Oedipus. I'd rather marry a duck-billed platypus than end up like old Oedipus Rex. This is WFUV ninety point seven and WFUV dot org.